0: I want to read to you from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in the New Testament. After the two longer letters to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then we have Galatians and then Ephesians. So you can find it tucked in there in your New Testament. Now, I want to read to you just in the first two lines of this letter before we begin to unpack what he has to say here. So let me read to you these lines and then I'll explain what it is that we're doing. Paul began his letter in this way. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My intention um, for... The coming months is that I want to begin to teach through this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus. And the reason why I want to do so at a very high level um, is because, partly because of the importance of this letter historically and globally, um, there is no question in my mind that of all the influential thinkers and writers that have lived in the history of the world, the Apostle Paul is right up there among the most important men who've ever lived and written, and his writings have continued to bear an impact upon the world in extraordinary ways. And of all the things that he wrote and that have been left and recorded for us through history, the 13 letters of the New Testament... Uh, The letter to the Ephesians belongs up there, I think, with the letter to the Romans and to the Galatians as one of the most important things that's ever been written, and has had profound impact upon um, the church of God, and therefore also ripple effects into culture and society in ways that um, I don't think we'll ever fully grasp or understand. There is the importance of the letter itself, and also because of its extraordinary contemporary relevance To so many of the issues and questions we face, whether on a personal level, wanting to live lives that are healthier and happier, um, in our understanding of the goodness of God and the way that that can impact our day-to-day well-being, And then also in our life together, what it means to be a people who represent every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, the church of God. And how Christ intended for his church to be an extraordinary representation of his heavenly reality, the kingdom of God. And so much more, practical teaching and so on that comes through in this letter. And so it isn't an exaggeration to say that I think that this this letter to the Ephesians has the power to change our lives Change the way we think, the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the church. And it is um, with real anticipation that I want to dig into this. But I want to say a warning right at the start, that I'm going to need to take some time to work through this letter. Um, why? Um, well, you have to understand, partly our practice as a church, like many, many um, churches around the world and through history, our practice is, it's not always the case in every church, but our practice is to take a portion of the scripture and then to want to pull it apart and understand it and tease out the meaning and, uh, and recognize that in every word and every line and every, every thought that is recorded in the Word of God, there is extraordinary power to change us if only we'll sit with it and understand it. The Bible itself often calls us to the discipline of meditation, which does not mean um, crossing your legs and, 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 and pronouncing a chant, but rather the, the act of chewing upon and understanding and working with the scriptures. And we do this together when we gather. This is a public form of meditation in one sense, but we also do it when we're on our own if we study the word of God. And for some people, this is a foreign, a foreign idea to do this. I recognize that, especially if you're new to church and um, you've never really experienced this, this practice of just going through, you know, taking an ancient document like this, reading a couple of lines, and then pulling it apart and understanding its meaning for our lives. It's a strange thing to do, I grant you. When I was um, a boy, probably around 12 or 13 years of age, um, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor like me, before me, and um, we would occasionally have guest guests Preachers come through to visit our church, friends um, from around the world. And on one occasion, we had a family uh, passing through town, and uh, the dad was a pastor of a church in Dubai, and he was, they were a Sri Lankan family. And as we enjoyed dinner with them uh, on the Saturday night before the Sunday when we would be going to church, um, he introduced us to a couple of interesting practices and I grew up in a small white city in the, in the south of England where I had very limited experience to, um, to uh, other cultures and uh, so this was a fascinating thing. First of all he was teaching us how to eat with our hands to put aside the abomination of cutlery and to get in there and he taught us the technique of, of scooping up the rice and curry with your hand and then just popping it into your mouth with your thumb action and uh, you know as a young as a boy, this was absolutely fascinating to me and, and, and really enjoyable. But then even slightly more surprising, towards the end of dinner, once the plate was cleaned, off, cleaned out, uh, he picked up the bones from the chicken and began to bite off the end of a bone and then chew the ends of the bones. And uh, he knew what he was doing. He was trying to surprise us as young um, English boys, unaccustomed to this practice. And then he began to teach us what he was doing. You bite off the bits of bone, you spit out the bones, and you suck out the marrow. This is the goodness, right? I was a little horrified, but once I got over that feeling, I began to join in and love the experience. And of course, um, people will tell you this is very good for you. It's good to eat with your hands. It stimulates the nerves, which activates your, your gut system. It's also good to suck the marrow. That's where the richness is. And so to me, that's an apt... A comparison to this practice it may be strange and foreign to you to take a book of the bible and then go through so carefully in this way but this is and, and even if it is foreign and odd to you this is also good for us it's like chewing the bones it's sucking the marrow it's wanting to understand the word of god in a deep level and why then must we do this carefully and slowly i want to give you a couple of reasons right at the outset before we begin to delve in. One is because of the dense and concentrated nature of a letter like this, this letter to the Ephesians. You have to understand that the Apostle Paul, having planted the church in Ephesus, which was a port town on the Aegean Sea on the coast of Turkey, it's no longer on the coast because of silt and so on that means that it's inland but at the time it was a port town and a major city and Paul had been involved in the planting and founding of this church and one of the things that we read about in the book of Acts is how every day he would gather um, with the crowds who would who were in the marketplace and teach them for hours so perhaps between 11 a.m and 4 p.m uh, for around five hours a day, he was teaching and dialoguing with anyone who would stop and, th- and listen and pay attention and debate. And so he was doing that probably six days a week, which gives you a picture of the amount that this man had to say. You think, I'm verbose? The Apostle Paul was teaching somewhere up to 30 hours a week in the context of this city of Ephesus. He was a man who had immersed himself in the scriptures as a Jewish boy growing up and then had encountered Jesus and had spent some time in the the desert rethinking everything he'd learned in the light of Jesus and having extraordinary revelation and understanding into the way God's works have been worked out in the world and the power and impact of the gospel. And it was his life's passion To impart the things that he had learned there is in Acts 19 and Acts 20 where it tells us a story of his time in Ephesus there's a little journey he makes to another place called Troas and when he's in Troas there in Acts chapter 20 he teaches on one occasion for so long because he's about to say goodbye to this church family and they're gathered in a room uh, probably smaller than this one And uh, the the church has gathered, and it's going late into the night. They've lit those little oil lamps um, that were burned in the Middle East at the time, burning olive oil on a wick. And the room, there were loads of these lamps everywhere. The room is filling with the smoke of this oil that's burning. It's warm. It's, It's a humid night. And as Paul is going on and on and on and teaching and teaching and teaching, there's a young lad there who... Gets into trouble. It says, a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You can feel Luke just remembering, just still, he just carried on going. And it says, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, I don't really feel like I've attained anywhere near the heights of this kind of experience of preaching whereby anyone has died from. Uh, falling asleep in my preaching and I'm not sure that I shall ever feel accomplished until perhaps that takes place. But Paul then immediately goes downstairs and sees him raised from the dead. And I'm just saying this as a backdrop to help you understand that when you're reading a letter like this one to the Ephesian church, you have to understand how, how tightly compressed and condensed the teaching is. He was sitting in prison in Rome writing this letter. Paper or parchment was very expensive and therefore, he had to weigh every word, every phrase. And what you have here is the distilled and concentrated version of the things that he would have taught when he was in the public spaces, p- teaching for hours upon hours. Those of you from Southeast Asia will know um, that it's a custom, particularly in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, whenever a, uh, one of your children is taking, preparing for an exam... That the mother or grandmother or great grandmother will instruct them to drink Brand's chicken essence. <laughs> and Brand's chicken essence is basically you take lots of chickens and boil them and cook them until you distill the, the, the goodness of a chicken down to a tiny little pot of concentrated dark juice, or whatever you want to describe it as. And it's supposed to contain all the goodness of many chickens and the amino acids and all the things. And, it, and people drink it in the superstitious belief that this is going to supercharge your brain and, uh, and help you to, to ace these exams. But of course, in a sense, when you're reading something like the letter to the Ephesians, it is the brand's chicken essence of Paul's teaching. Everything that he taught in public that was so good for people's nourishment spiritually condensed and reduced down to this thick, um, rich concentrated uh, concoction that does your soul good and transforms your life. One of my great heroes was um, uh, Martin Lord Jones, who preached in the church across the river from us uh, in the middle of the last century. And when he set about teaching his way through the letter to the Ephesians, he took eight years to go from beginning to end. I do not plan to do the same thing. I do not have his ability or skill, but I do believe that we need to take a little bit of time with this. So there's partly the denseness of the letter, but there's also the worthiness and the power of this particular letter and the way that it has impacted so many lives over the years. My conviction is that Christians are called to pursue To the extent that God makes you able, something like a mastery of scripture. That might seem utterly incomprehensible or unattainable to you, but we are people of the word. We're people of the word of God. And the Bible tells us time and time again that it is God's word that nourishes and transforms us. And we are, with the ability that we have, Christians are people who are called to devote themselves to this word. Humans have an extraordinary capacity in this regard to immerse themselves in a subject and understand it inside out. Have you ever watch the, um, the BBC quiz show Mastermind? It's fascinating because they will take these contestants and partly they'll be tested on their general knowledge and they're generally intelligent people to begin with who have a wide knowledge of all kinds of obscure facts. But each of these contestants will also have submitted their specialist subject in advance and the editors will have decided whether it's an acceptable subject or not to be quizzed on. And so having been asked general knowledge questions, each of them will have an opportunity also to be asked questions tailored to their specific area of expertise and mastery. And you have the most weird subjects that occur on this quiz show like the Moomin Saga by um, Tove Johnson, or the history of Lancashire County Cricket Club, or the life cycle and the habits of the honeybee. People will have delved into these subjects through fascination and passion and desire and and curiosity, and will know these things inside out. And most of this knowledge is completely useless to your life. And yet, this is the human ability to be interested in these things. And my guess is that if I sat down and asked any one of you what it is that you you have some special knowledge about, most of you could give me something, whether it's some area of sport or of science or of business or of gossip columns or whatever it is that you're into, and you know something more than other people know about it. And my charge and, and sort of conviction and exhortation to you is, Christian, you are called to know the Word of God and to pursue something like a mastery of these letters and these books and the word of God in general. And of course the difference is that unlike the Moomin saga or any of these other areas of knowledge, it has the power to change your life and to equip you to change the lives of others and to impact this world in all kinds of ways that God wants to use you. That's his intention for each of his children. And therefore for these reasons, I believe that we're called to get into a book like this and pull it apart and understand it. There's a couple of moments in the Bible when two prophets, in the, New, in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, and the New Testament, the prophet John, who writes the book of Revelation. They're instructed in prophetic visions to take a scroll and consume it, eat this parchment scroll. And of course, they didn't do it literally, but in the vision, it's a picture of what God's people are meant to do with God's word, to take the word of God in the scroll of God's word and then eat it, consume it into your very being and understand it inside out. And so my challenge as we begin is that this is a worthy letter we need to therefore understand and pull apart and take an interest in and devote our minds to that our lives would be changed. And I want to ask then, as we just open up these first two verses, why pay such a close attention to this specific letter? What makes it worthy? And I think that the things that I have to say on this will have a general application to you in terms of your ability to tackle and wrestle with the word of God. That you are to be, as I've been exalting you already, to be people of the word, to give your life, your time, your attention, to the Bible and to have a plan and a deliberate discipline in approaching this. But I think it will also have a specific encouragement to you as we embark on this journey together. And it will be a journey in which I think we'll have to take breaks from time to time as we work our way through this. But a specific encouragement to chew the marrow with me as we enter into the book of Ephesians. And I want to ask you then this question, What? Why? Why pay such close attention? And I want to give you a few reasons that occur from this introduction. As Paul wrote the first lines of this letter, he was summoning people to pay attention to what he had to say. You know this as letters flop through your door, onto your doormat at home. That there are letters that call for your attention. Perhaps they come in that familiar brown envelope of Her Her Majesty's uh, Revenue and Customs. And your heart stops for a second. You wonder how much tax you owe. There are letters that call for your attention. And when Paul wrote the introduction to to this letter, he was inviting the church in Ephesus to pay attention. And so he carefully weighed what he had to say to them right at the very start because he wanted them to listen. And so the first reason why we have to pay attention is because of the authority of the speaker and his authority to speak to you. He begins with these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now we live in a world that is fighting for our attention all the time. We live in a world that is competing, that attention is really the center of our economy in so many ways. There's the entertainment industry. I remember reading a few years ago, I think it was an interview with the CEO of Netflix, who when he was meditating on thinking out loud about the question of Netflix's greatest competitor, he didn't list the other streaming services. He didn't talk about um, Disney Plus or Apple TV or any of these other things or Amazon Prime or or, or terrestrial TV channels or any of those things. He said that our greatest competitor is sleep. And he he was articulating there that his whole business model was geared on Getting and then holding the attention of humans so that they continue to pay money to the subscription service. And the same is true, of course, in the whole way that so much of our economy is modeled these days. Once upon a time... If someone wanted to get your attention, they had to put great big billboards on, paint them onto brick buildings or or, or attach them by the side of roads or put them in magazines and newspapers, these advertisements. And now we carry around these portable billboards in our pockets so that we are constantly uh, being called to give our attention to certain things. And the great question when we live in the attention economy is whose voice should we listen to? And to recognize that you have a measure of volition about this that you should choose, you should be deliberate, you should be intentional about those voices that you listen to and those that you dismiss and ignore and give less time and attention to. One of the great problems of humanity, in my view, is our inability to be deliberate about these things. And so when Paul began his letter to the Ephesians, and he began in this opening, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, you have to understand what an incredibly potent attention grabber this was for the hearers who heard this line. I want you to picture the scene. Ephesus was a city of around 250,000 people at the time. And some years earlier, Paul had been involved in the founding of this church. He'd discovered there a few disciples and then built them up into a great congregation. Maybe hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people had become believers. We're not sure, I suppose. And he'd subsequently departed and he'd been long gone. They hadn't seen him for quite some time, years But that day as they gathered for church on Sunday, there was a guest preacher in the congregation, a man named Tychicus. And as he stood up to begin to speak, he pulled out a letter that he had in his possession and he began to open it up and to tell people that he was about to read a very important letter that was specifically for their attention. And as he read these first words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I think there would have been a sort of hush that fell on the congregation, a sort of tingle that went down their spines because of the importance of this man to them. And this is true for a couple of reasons. One is because of the very personal and specific history that they had had as a church with this man, Paul. And I want to relay to you some of the things that had taken place when he had been involved in his missionary journeys in the city of Ephesus. He had arrived to discover there around 12 men who called themselves disciples of Jesus. But they had only a partial understanding of the gospel that we believe. It's often the case with people who call themselves Christians that they have some measure of understanding, but only a partial measure, even if you've been in church your whole life. Paul's great gift was to get involved in the lives of people like that and understand what they did and didn't understand and then instruct them so that they go away built up. And he begins to teach them. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they reply and say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so he begins to teach them about the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of into Christ and the way the Holy Spirit wants to change your life and as he taught them on these things, he then baptized them into Jesus and it says on hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this church, this powerless congregation of a few men who had only a partial understanding of the things that they were supposed to give allegiance to, this belief in this Jesus was suddenly transformed by the power of God because of the influence of this man, this Apostle Paul, who had come among them. And this becomes part of the founding myth and narrative of the beginning of this church his arrival. And then he begins to preach. He began by preaching in the synagogue there in Ephesus, as was his practice, always to preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He always wanted the Jews to have the first opportunity to respond to the claims of their Messiah. But after a few months preaching to the synagogue, he was rejected by the Jews. And so he went into the public space called the Hall of Tyrannus. And he began preaching every day there to the crowds who would gather to listen to that the philosophers and the debaters of the age as was the practice this was in many ways a form of entertainment in that day and age to listen to public speakers it was the netflix of the day if you will and as paul is preaching for around five hours a day we're told how the word of god was was working its way out of his life and into the people of that city it said it continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. By Asia, of course, it means the ancient definition of Asia, which was largely Turkey and some of the surrounding regions. All Asia heard. In other words, there was this the sense in which Paul's presence at that hub place in Ephesus, that port city, meant that many people were then talking and taking on their, into their hearts and minds the message of Jesus who's come to save us from our sins. And then they were going back to their villages and their towns and telling others so that the word of God was spreading. And I think in this way, many churches were founded, little communities of disciples all through the region because of Paul's presence there in that great city. It's one of the reasons why we have to have churches like ours in the center of cities like this so that as you are discipled and grow and then God sends you out to the furthest reaches of the world, you bring with you the deposit of the gospel that you've been instructed in and learned in a place like this. That was Paul's practice. All of Asia heard the word. And then there were the miracles. We're told how God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that, listen to this, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. It seems to me when I read the book of Acts that this kind of miracle power was not always consistently present on the apostles. that There were moments in their ministry when they enjoyed an unusual experience of the power of God. And that's why Luke draws attention to it. He said, when Paul was in Ephesus, something extraordinary was taking place. Not only was his preaching reaching the whole region, but also there was a miraculous anointing and power of the Holy Spirit on this man so that even these, these, these materials, these handkerchiefs, these aprons that touched his skin could be laid on the sick and they would instantly be healed and evil spirits were being exorcised from people. You can imagine What a buzz there was around this man. I've seen it from time to time when people claim to be miracle workers in our day and age. How quickly, how rapidly people gather in great crowds to listen and to hear and to see what's going on. Some of it may be credible. Some of it is not credible. But the point is we have a fascination with these things. And that was what was the buzz that surrounded this great man, the Apostle Paul. What a man he was. And then we hear one of my favorite stories in the Bible. There were these seven sons of of a a Jewish high priest. Um, They're called the seven sons of Sceva. And they were so impressed by Paul that they wanted to do the things that he did. So they encountered a man who was full of demons or who was demonized. And they begin to to say to him, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, hoping to cast out the demons from this man. And the demon answers in this way, And says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then begins to give these seven lads the beating of their lives so that they're stripped naked and they flee bruised and wounded from the presence of this man with this sort of supernatural power given to him by this demonic presence in his life. And we're told that as a result of this, it said it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The fear wasn't the fear of the demons. It was the fear of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his emissary, this great man, the Apostle Paul. So not only has Paul been involved in the founding, the preaching, the miracle power, this extraordinary favor that God puts on his life, it all kind of culminates in this moment when there's such a change that takes place in the hearts of the residents of Ephesus who were interested in, in all kinds of spiritual realities. They worshiped their god, goddess Diana, who was this goddess with all these breasts attached to her torso, so that she was the many-breasted goddess. And they also engaged in all this strange witchcraft, and they had all kinds of stuff going on there, this occultic practice. Some of these residents were so impacted by this that it comes to a kind of crunch moment when it tells us that a number of them who'd practiced magic arts brought their books and they burned them. And they burned their their magic books to to a value of 50,000 silver coins. You can imagine what a ruckus this created when all this value just went up in smoke in in the city of Ephesus and how that would have set mouths gossiping. What is this? Who is this Jesus? And who is this Paul whose power and preaching has so impacted the lives of these people? And it all comes to this climactic moment, this kind of crunch moment with the triumph of the gospel when the idol makers, the manufacturers whose business was making these little models of Diana and carefully carved, carving out every boob so that they would be infatu- a source of infatuation for the men who put them on their shelves and then prayed to her and worshipped her. That was their business. That was how they earned money. And they're fuming because as day goes after follows day, as month follows month, less and less of these idols are being sold because fewer and fewer people are impressed anymore with this powerless, dead goddess who had no impact on their lives and instead they're listening to the preaching of this man the apostle paul and so they drum up all these false charges and they say they begin to to stir people up and to call people to action and there's this kind of anger that foments in the city and it all kind of boils up into this great big riot that takes place in the center of the city all because of the presence of this man paul and the gospel that he preached We've experienced rioting in London from time to time, and we know it's a traumatic thing. It shakes a city, doesn't it? And here the whole city of Ephesus is, as, is just enraged in this kind of mob mentality because of the presence of this man. There was an archbishop of the Church of England who commented that wherever Paul went, there was a riot, and wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> and there was something about the legend of this man he, he was famous. And his presence made an, an extraordinary impact upon this church. And it leads us to one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, which is a moment when Paul is saying his final goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he charges them and encourages them because they, they, they know that they'll never see his face again. What they don't know is they'll receive the letter that we're going to study together. But they won't see his face again. And as he's saying goodbye to them, he says there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And friend, I don't think we can really exaggerate the impact of this man of God on that particular congregation, the specific reasons why his name would have caused that tingle in the congregation as this letter began to be read. And of course, quite apart from their own history with him, there is also the general reality of who he was that applies also to us. Paul, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's quite a formal opening. He asked, why was he so formal when given the fact that these are his friends? And I think the answer is because he didn't want to rely upon his personal history with them to establish his authority. He always relied upon the divine commission that he'd received from Jesus. He always answered to Jesus, and it was in Christ's name that he understood himself to speak with the authority of Jesus into the lives of people, whether through preaching or through teaching in his letters. Christ had said when he called and saved this man that he will be my instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus had chosen and called him to be his apostle, his sent one, his missionary to go to the Gentiles and to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem into the Roman Empire so that all of the Roman Empire eventually would come to hear the name of Jesus. And therefore, it's no exaggeration to say that when you are listening to the Apostle Paul, because of the the reality of who he was as an Apostle, by the will of God, that he speaks with the authority of Jesus himself so that every word of a letter like this one, the letter to the Ephesians, is as though Jesus himself were speaking to you. That's how we should read the whole of the Bible. And it's certainly how we should read the letter to the Ephesians. And the implication of that is, friend, If the Bible has such authority, you must pay attention. There is the authority of the speaker. More briefly then, there is also the urgency of the calling and the identity that he points to in you. So having introduced himself, when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that gets your attention, then he, he, he speaks to the addressees, the listeners, and he says to them, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so vital and important to understand why he addresses Christians in this way, and it has to do with Paul's understanding of speaking to our identity as believers, I think it's worth just saying at the outset that your sense of identity has a profound impact upon your life. Who you think you are and who you belong to has extraordinary consequences in terms of determining your life choices, the things you love, the things you hate, the way you dress, the way you speak, the places you go, the things you fight for, the things you ignore and take no, pay no attention to. So many of the life choices that we make emerge from our sense of who we are and how we understand who we are. That's a subject worthy of understanding and taking apart. I have to leave it for another day except to say this. It becomes most obvious to us, doesn't it, in times of war. Whenever you're engaged in any kind of conflict, the first thing you have to do is decide, who am I? Which side do I belong on? And conflict has the power of galvanizing identity. Perhaps this will be Putin's greatest mistake, by the way, in terms of the conduct of his armed forces in Eastern Europe, which is to galvanize Ukrainian identity in a way that nothing else could have done, and which will so solidify the identity and the sense of who we are as a people that that will be an unshakable reality for perhaps centuries to come. You have to define who you are, and then that determines your rad- the choices that you make, whether it's by way of sacrifice and personal sacrifice. You know, in times of war, people are willing to, to, to experience rationing, they're willing to lay down their lives, they're willing to, to experience upheaval and all these kinds of things because of that, 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 that idea of who I am. And this is the power of Scripture to speak to you as Christians. And why Paul always opens his letters by speaking to your identity, who you are first of all, because it's a kind of a summons. He says, to the saints and to the faithful. Which means that if you were sat in the church of Ephesus in that day, there's a sense in which it would call you up to something greater. So if you're spiritually lethargic, or you're apathetic, or you're someone who's drifting or who's experiencing powerful temptations in life. Paul, Paul, as it were, points to you and says, you're a saint and you're faithful. And these words have extraordinary power in addressing our hearts and helping us understand who we are in Christ. The word saint, a holy one. Or it can also be translated, someone who is consecrated to God. Perhaps the most important title of all in Scripture for believers. It has in, it bound up in it a couple of ideas that I think are most important and prominent. One is this idea that you're blameless. That if you've become someone who's been saved by Jesus, you've believed on him and you've been justified by his blood, you are no longer in Scripture described as a sinner. But you are rather described as someone who is blameless before God. And you think, that doesn't seem to be an accurate de- description of my life to this point. And yet that is precisely how God views you. You are blameless. It has I- this idea that you are without blame. You are pure. You are holy to God. But it also has, carries with it this idea of consecration. And consecration is when you take something profane or ordinary, or mundane, and then you consecrate it, which is you set it it apart to belong to divine special purposes. And in the Bible, there are, you can read the Old Testament law, there are physical objects and buildings and instruments that can be consecrated and designated as holy to God. They can only be used for holy or, or sacred purposes. But it's also said in Scripture that God's people as a whole are a consecrated people, which is to say, you belong to God. It seems to me that most of the spiritual lethargy and apathy that we see in ourselves and in the church of God in general is a failure to grasp This truth that we belong to Him. When you understand who you belong to, all of your life decisions flow out from and are determined by that fundamental recognition and submission and reality. And He describes them also as faithful it speaks of their allegiance in a city that had competing allegiances, where some people said, I believe in Diana, and some people said, I practice magic arts. He says, the thing that distinguishes you as a crew, as a group, as a company, and he could say the same if you were speaking to us today, the thing that distinguishes you from all other Londoners is that you are believers. You have given verbal and heart allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is the most fundamental thing about you. And the effect of naming Christians in this way, when he calls them and says saints and faithful, part of the effect was negative. It helps you to cast off wrong notions of who you are. You cast off, as I've said, this idea that you're a sinner. That's not to say that you don't sin But that the New Testament does not define you as a sinner in any place that I can see. It always defines you as a holy one, as a saint. You cast it off. You cast off the idea that you are a worldly person. Now you may find yourself in the world, but you are not of the world. You are a heavenly people. You cast off the idea that you are you are still a slave to your desires. You may find yourself locked in a death grip with certain desires that you feel are almost impossible to overcome. But as we'll discover later in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, you are no longer a slave to these desires. They don't master you anymore. Which is to say you're free, friend, to act and to live according to God's plan and purposes. You're no longer a doubter. You're faithful. You've believed on Jesus. And you're no longer neutral. Which is to say... There's no such thing as neutrality in this great spiritual war because you are a saint. You've been called out. You've been consecrated. You are a faithful one. You are someone who now belongs to God and has given allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you cast off these wrong notions of who you are, but then it also bolsters you with these right ideas of, of what you are. It confers dignity upon you. So you say, this is who I am. I'm a saint. I'm a faithful one. I can walk out of here with that sense of who I am and that can determine everything that I believe and feel and think and act and the ways, the things that I'm pursuing with my life. This is how God sees me. I may have failed to live up to it, but this is who I am. And that begins to reorder all your priorities in life so that every desire, every intention, every resource that you possess of time and money and everything else begins to be ordered according to God's will. The image I love with this respect is the image of iron filings. When I was a kid, my dad bought me a little um, set of iron filings where you have a magnet and these tiny pieces of iron that look like dust in a container. And the extraordinary thing is that when you begin to move the magnet near to the iron filings, all kinds of beautiful patterns are summoned out and called as they stand to attention in the presence of this magnet. And that's the effect when you begin to understand and it drips into your, into your core of who, who you are, this idea that I'm a saint, that I'm a faithful one. It's like every part of your being becomes aligned to the presence of your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that you are, love, feel, think becomes aligned to him. That's the vision of the Christian life that Paul wanted you to understand And of course, as he addresses the believers at the outset of his letter, he's saying, pay attention. Not just because of who I am as an apostle, but also because of who you are. As servants, as saints, as faithful ones. You must listen, he's saying. You must listen carefully and attentively to understand the things that are true of you. Because in this, you'll experience transforming life power. So it's the urgency of the calling and identity. And one final thing, it also is to do with the power of the message that he had to communicate. Because then he begins to say to them, and I think in a sense this line is a summary of the entire letter, and I could explain that to you if we had time. But he says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this was a common way that Paul loved to greet the believers. But these were not empty words. You know how when you write letters and you write dear so and so and yours sincerely. These words are kind of rote repetition. But when Paul wrote these words. These words were to him life changing reality. This was power. You see. The apostle Paul lived with a sense of the unbelievable way in which he did not deserve to be who he was, to be saved and to be an apostle of Jesus. He says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. When he's describing the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to the many people who saw him alive from the dead, he said, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If you want to understand why paul lived with such a deep sense of conviction of who of the gospel that he was willing to die for is because he knew he'd seen the risen lord jesus christ but then he says for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god and he's referring back to his life as a rabidly fanatic religious zealot who despised the message of Jesus, the idea that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah. He rejected that idea completely and despised those people who called themselves Christian And despised them with such a hatred that he made it his life's mission as a young man to pursue them from place to place, to find gatherings like ours, discover who the ringleaders were, and have them executed so that the church would be destroyed even in its infancy. We're told in Acts chapter 9 how he was on the Damascus road. It says, and we're told specifically that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was a kind of religious bounty hunter who who carried with him permission from the rulers, the Jewish rulers, to go into the synagogues of the regions around and find out, which Jews had professed belief in Jesus as their Messiah and then arrest them and bring them back to put them on trial, hopefully that they would be executed. And he'd been there at the execution of Stephen, the first martyr, and we're told how he was there giving approval to his death. He's like, this is right. This is how we need to deal with this Christianity. And on the Damascus Road, when he'd seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ in his heavenly glory and been blinded by the sight, Jesus speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Of course, he was persecuting Christ's people, but for Jesus, that's the same thing. To hate the church is to hate Jesus. A word to to any of you, by the way, who are Christians, who say, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about his church. Understand that the two things cannot be separated. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And in a moment when Christ could have struck him dead for his blasphemous hatred against the Lord of all things, Jesus instead decides, this is the man I'm going to use. And from then on, Paul lived out the rest of his life with an overwhelming sense of the grace of God, the kindness of God. That though he had been a blasphemer, as he describes himself, and persecutor of the people of God full of hatred, full of anger. And he'd lived a worse life than any of you. I know that for certain. Yet Jesus had saved him. And so in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where he said that Christ had appeared to him as one untimely born, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Which is to say that I think when you want to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and understand how it is that he possessed such urgency, such zeal, such passion, Such devotion, such a willingness to sacrifice his own preferences and comforts for the sake of the gospel. How it is that he lived with such power. He will say to you something like what Christ said in Luke chapter 7 where he says, Those who have been forgiven much love much. I'm so aware, in other words, of the grace of God that I'm unworthy and yet I've been saved that that awareness of the grace of God motivates me to give my life to Jesus entirely and without reservation. There is a direct correlation in your life, isn't there, between your love for Jesus, your willingness to turn away from sin, and your willingness to devote yourself to his will, a correlation between those things and your appreciation of how gracious he has been to you. And Paul was a physician of souls. He understood people's hearts. And he understood that when he was writing to a church like the one in Ephesus or if he wrote to us today, he would understand that in a congregation like ours, there are people with all kinds of struggles, whether it's personal, internal struggles with joy and lack of joy, with temptations, with doubts, with a sense of guilt or unworthiness, and how these things can smother the flame of God inside of you when this is the dominant way that you think. And so his great purpose in preaching and in teaching and writing to believers in this way was always to help them understand how much God loved them, to understand the grace And the peace of God that was theirs in Christ. As you read on in the letter to the Ephesians, he describes this as your inheritance. It's possible, isn't it, to inherit something but never live in the good of it, either because you don't know or because you choose not to receive it. But Paul always wanted to get into the minds and hearts of people like us and help you understand what is yours in Jesus, that you are loved, that God loves you, that he's kind to you, that he's been gracious to you and therefore that you can cast off this sense of unworthiness or this lack of peace in your heart and relish and sit in and bask in the goodness of God and that that understanding as that's deepened and expanded in your soul will create within you the reservoir and capacity to live a life of devotion to Jesus. And how did he expect you to grasp these things? And as I close, I want you to understand two things. The first is he expected you to to grasp this because the power of the Spirit is always at work in us to unfold and to help us to see the things that are ours in Christ. And this is what he kept praying for the believers in Ephesus. He He said on more than one occasion in this letter, he tells them what he prays for for them. And he says in Ephesians 1 verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So he's saying, I'm praying that you will, you will understand the things I understand about what it means to be a Christian. Because when you understand these things, it's going to change your life. And for as long as you remain ignorant or have misunderstanding, you'll remain weak and childish in your faith. But when you grasp it, when you have eyes that are open, when it sinks into your spirit and begins to re- reconfigure everything that you love and think about, then your life will be transformed. And so he's praying, the Spirit of God, fall on this people. Change them. Let them see what I see. Let them understand what I understand. Let them understand how much they're loved and feel it in the deepest part of their being. So partly it's the power of, the word of, of God's Spirit upon you. But he also, understand this, Paul also knew that we will never grasp this unless it comes through our understanding and through our minds. And that is why he wrote the letter. It wasn't that he was content just to sit in his prison cell in Rome and pray for the Ephesian church and hope that God would just act upon them independently of anything that Paul could offer. But rather, he began to put pen to paper and to write a letter to them so that they could understand the love of God, what it means to experience his grace, what it means to have his peace in your soul and that can change and transform your entire life. He understood, in other words, that this has to come through your understanding and that's why he prayed as he did, that they'd have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And there is no other way you can know Jesus, my friend, other than through the word of God as it's communicated to you. As I close, I just want to say then my hope. My hope is that in understanding the urgency of this introduction to this letter, that partly this will be a general stimulus to you to go away and devote yourself afresh to the word of God so that you'll begin to see all of reality through the lens of scripture and experience its life-changing power in you. But I also hope that you'll begin to experience something of that change today as we devote ourselves to the study of this book. What is it that Paul says about this transforming power? He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Which is to say that this is a gift of God in his lavish kindness to you, friend. If you're someone who is discouraged if you're someone who feels like you're constantly a failure in your Christian life, if you're someone who has found yourself beating yourself up or feeling that you lack passion or lack understanding or lack zeal for God, you look at others and think, I wish I had a heart like them. But I'm nothing. Understand the Father's love toward you, brother and sister. He wants to give you more grace. Grace. He wants to give you more peace. He wants to come into the deepest part of you and begin to rewire you from the inside out. His power, his truth, his love that comes to you through Jesus.